Let's all pray. Oh, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, as we prepare our hearts to receive your word, we ask you, Lord, that we uh, that you pour out, pour out your spirit and touch everything that we are, not just our hearts, our minds, our emotion, everything, our, our thinking. Lord, with the truth of your word, we understand, Lord, that only, only your Holy Spirit, that, like your word says, it, is the, it takes the spirit of truth to lead us into all the truth. So uh, we ask you that you will open the word as we, as we submit ourselves to you to the authority of your word. We anticipate our hearts to be changed, our mindset to be changed, and our emotions and our feelings to be subjected to the truth of your word. Thank you, Father, Lord. We love you, Jesus. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go to uh, John chapter 16, the gospel of John chapter oh, 17, sorry. The Gospel of John, chapter 17. I'm going to start reading from verse 1. After Jesus said this, this is after his teaching on, on the, the, uh, the function of the Holy Spirit. He will lead you into all truth and all those things. And after saying that you will testify... With, uh, about me with him in partnership with the Holy Spirit. And then he said, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all, all people that he might give eternal life to all those you, gave, you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you have, you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory you had, I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you have whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted, accepted them. They knew, every, uh, they knew for certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you gave, you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, Protect them by the power of your name, 
the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, obviously meaning Judas, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you, but I say these things while I am while I am still in the world, so that they may have the f- full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the, wor- the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For their sake, or for them, I sanctify myself. That they too may be truly sanctified. That last statement is one of the most powerful statements. For their sake, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. The title of my sermon this morning is, a few weeks ago, I, my title, I preached on uh, a sermon, and the title was The Conduct of the One Being Followed. This is the part two. Same title, but this is the part two. How do we conduct ourselves as people who are being followed? As a pastor, as a husband, as a father in the house, as, you know, somebody is following someone else, some, somehow or another. So uh, we've been going through this slide, you know, the, pretty much from chapter 13, which is, you know, from 13 to the 17, the last probably five chapters about the last intimate moment before the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus, intimate moment between, between Jesus and his disciples. In this moment, the disciples were confronted by a bleak reality that happened beyond their expectation. And the reality was that Jesus, their, their rabbi, their master, was about to be betrayed, whom they didn't know up to that point, even up at the crucifixion, none of them knew who it was. And uh, that's number one. Number two, also another reality that the, the very person, that one of the prominent uh, leaders or apostles in, in their circle called Peter, Jesus predicted that he's, he, he, he's about to uh, deny Jesus. So confronted with this reality and Jesus being aware where the disciples are, uh, were at at the moment began to comfort them. So he comforted them by, by saying, you can take comfort in me because of who I am. And we went through the, through the whole points. All you need to do is just to believe in me. From chapter 14 especially. And then, uh, and also he, he talked about the coming comforter, the advocate, the, the, uh, yeah, the, the teacher, the Holy Spirit. And because of, of his coming, he was telling them he will be with them and he will be in them forever. That's a great promise. 
And he will cause the disciples to do greater things than what Jesus did. That is an amazing promise. And he will lead them into all the truth. So, uh, and also in talking about the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, in saying you're going to do greater things, Jesus was understanding this is, they were disturbed by the whole situation. Jesus tried to get them to, to focus on the future task because there's an exciting time coming for them. And also in chapter 15, we, we, we went through last week, Jesus promised them a fruitful life. And the point that we, we learn is that spirit-filled life is meant to be a fruitful life. It is a life that needs to be nurtured and cultivated. It doesn't happen automatically. Right? Just because you're spirit-filled, you need to cultivate your heart. And you need to nurture that relationship. And this fruitful life is something that is measurable, something that is observable, right? And something that is identifiable. How is it identified? How is it measured? Easy. According to John chapter 15, pretty much a fruitful life, we talked about it, is the impact we have on other people. Because, like I used the metaphor, a mango tree doesn't need mangoes. A tree doesn't eat its fruit. The fruit of a tree is needed by everything and anything other than the tree itself. So if you want to bear fruit, the question is, who actually benefits from your life? <laughs> Do people come and eat the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in you? That is Christianity 101. We are so cultured in Christianity. We, we have to be very careful that Christianity instead... Okay, let me, let, me just, let me just say this. In Acts chapter 11, it says that the disciples, for the first time, were called Christians. Acts chapter 11. Right? In other words, if you say yourself Christians, your saying is, I'm a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus defines what discipleship is. He said in Matthew chapter 28, he said the first thing he did after his resurrection or the last message that we know as the, uh, the uh, Great Commission. He said, go into all the world. And many of us, yeah, we all need to go into the world to do what? He said, to make disciples, not to bring converts, disciples. One day we're going to talk about that, the difference between converts and disciples. <laughs> That'd be great, wouldn't it? And he said, and he defines the very next verse, I think verse 21, Matthew 28, 21, verse 21. He said, go into all the world. He said, make disciples of all nations. Then he said, teach them to observe and obey everything I've taught you. So, in saying that, if I ask, if you tell me you're a Christian, I'm going to ask you, okay, so you're a disciple of Jesus, right? 
And to take it further, that means you're currently, right now, you are obeying everything that Jesus has asked you to do. And, ob- and you have observed and obeyed everything Jesus asked you to do. Because in a Western country, for example, in America, sometimes you, 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 know, you ask an American, are you a Christian? Of course I'm an American. <laughs> Isn't that right? <laughs> of course I'm a Christian. I'm an American. It doesn't work like that. Right. So, uh, fruitful life is a life of a disciple. And this, uh, this idea of fruitful life, it can only exist in the context of relationship, which means it leaves no room for independence, spirituality independent spirituality. I mentioned before to you, I don't believe in being independent. I believe in being autonomous. However, I believe in being interdependent because we need each other. Right? Two autonomous people, but they need each other. And in, in, in the community, we don't, we don't compete with one another, but in this context, we complete one another. We call that interdependent. So, go back to uh, chapter 17. We can divide chapter, chapter 17 into three sections. Verse 1 to 5 is Jesus praying for himself. Verse 6 to 19, Jesus praying for the disciples. And verse 20 to 26, Jesus is praying for the believers that will come through the message that is being brought by the disciples. So we will see, you know, there's a pattern here. The conduct of Jesus as the one being followed, how does he conduct himself? How does he behave himself? So, uh, go back to the passage. I've got these two important questions here. I've written, written this question. I've, I've mentioned it before, but now we're going to go through it thoroughly. Okay, this is the question. Question number one. If the only reason for Jesus to come into the world is to die and be offered as the holy, spotless, sacrificial lamb that pays for the sins of the world, then the question is, then why didn't he die when he was a baby or a child? Because that's all he needed to do. Just to die for the world, the moment he was born, bang, offer him up. Because that's, that's what's needed. Sacrificial lamb of God. Holy and blameless. As a baby or a teenager, it doesn't matter. All right? Or, there's another question. If there's another reason why Jesus came into the world, not just to be offered as a sacrificial lamb of God, but to fulfill the law, then why didn't he die when he was 60, 70, or 80 years old? Or 90 years old? It's a good question, isn't it? And yet, when we read the Bible, the, the narratives, we, we understand he died when he was about 33 years old. And as you read the book of the, uh, the, book of, uh, the Gospel of John, the Look, we went through this whole thing. 
we identified throughout the different passages, there is this phrase concerning the hour, the specific hour that Jesus was to die for. And, you know, start from chapter 2, verse 4, when Jesus performed miracles, when Mary asked him to, to perform miracles, he said, hey, woman, my hour has not yet come. So there is a, there's a definite hour that Jesus was aiming for. Chapter 7, verse 30. Chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 12, verse 23 and 27. Twice he talked about the hour has come. The hour is there. There is an indication that Jesus not just going to go in somewhere for something to happen, but he was serving a definite divine agenda and there is a specific hour that he was serving. But why 33 years old? Well, this moment. Let's go through it verse by verse. I'm going to read from verse 1, one to yeah, just a few verses. After Jesus said this, he looked, looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify. Okay, there, there you go, the hour. Now is the moment. He said, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you gave him or you have given him. So from verse 1 to 10, pretty much, Jesus was praying concerning this moment. And uh, here's, what, I'm, here's, here's what, I, what I watched. What do we learn in this prayer about of Jesus to the Father? Point number one, you can, you can write down. Even as the Son of God, Jesus shows what it means to be accountable to God. Because right now, from verse 1 to 10, is the moment of accountability. He gave a report of what he's done on earth to the Father. You know, sometimes in leadership, you hold people accountable, and they get sort of edgy about us. Like, big deal, man. It's like, you know, I sent you to do this. Give me a report. I want to hear. Jesus did that to the Father. He gave an account of what he's done on earth, and that he has finished the work that the Father sent him. In verse 4, where he said, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And then in verse 5, he asked for the reward. <laughs> he said, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Here's another question. After reading that, the question is, why would Jesus say the job is done? Therefore, give me my reward where he hasn't been to the cross yet. No, Jesus, you haven't done. (laughs) You haven't finished the work. Come on. Now you ask for the reward? If you read from verse 2 to 8, the answer is very clear. From verse 2 to 8 shows that there are some things Jesus must or has to accomplish first before going to the cross. Without those things, 
being completed, Jesus wasn't ready to go to the cross. Which brings us to number, number, point number two. As the son, the man who, who is to be followed, Jesus knew the heart of the father behind his earthly mission. What is the idea behind the whole mission thing? It's not just, he wasn't just task-oriented. He knew exactly what was in the heart of the Father concerning his mission. Point two, upon A from, from this point two. The ultimate aim of his mission is that people come to the knowledge of God. Remember verse two, he said, you have given me authority over all people so that, all, so that I may give them eternal life. And then verse 3, he defined what eternal life is. It says that eternal life is knowing you and knowing me. Which shows me that eternal life is not defined by the length of time, but by a life Eternal life is defined by a life that is filled with the true knowledge of who God is and who Jesus is. Sometimes we think it's about thousands of years or millions of years. No, actually Jesus said, that is not eternal life. And as I studied, you know, this, the, in, within the context, I realized there's a difference between life and existence. Or living and existing In this context, living implies being with God, who is the source of all of life. Because Jesus actually spoke of, you know, eternal existence separated from God. In Matthew chapter 9 verse 48, or Mark 9 verse 48, Matthew chapter 25 verse 14. Jesus actually talked about it. So for, from, from God's point of view, life is not just existing. Because there is, a, there is a time where there is, you can exist apart from God but being in torment. Like Jesus talked about it, okay, I mentioned before. The worms that never die, that keep eating you, and then the fire that cannot be quenched. So Jesus knew that him dying is not enough because people need to come to know the knowledge, to have the knowledge of the Father before he died. See, Jesus died not just for our sins, but the sins of the world. We all know that, right? But are all the world saved? No. How do we, you and I get saved? We, we actually, he paid for our sins, right? And for the rest of the world. But we appropriate that salvation by what? Faith. By knowing him, by believing in him. That's why for Jesus' life, no, unless just me dying on the cross is not going to be enough. People need to believe in what I do. That's why discipleship is at the very heart of what Jesus did. And listen to this in verse 6. That is the answer to the question. Why did Jesus come to the world? Why wasn't he ready to go to the cross? Number one, because what he, he defines uh, the, uh, the eternal life is about knowing God. And then it, 
verse 6 to 8. Listen to this. I have revealed to you those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they obeyed your word. I want you to either highlight whatever you need to do. This is the reason why Jesus couldn't go to, go to the cross. Because they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. And verse 8, for I gave them the words you gave, or you gave me, and they accepted, accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. That's why Jesus, it's almost like that's it. He couldn't go to the cross unless, before he actually, actually gathered a group of people that would really believe, not only just believe, but die for it. That's the reason. And you know what Jesus said? As the Father sent me, now I send you. That's why as a church, we, we believe Christianity is discipleship. There's, there's, there's no two way about it. It's nothing. Unless we disciple people, we don't do anything. We have to disciple people. It's not enough to gather people, to, get, to gather the crowd. As a matter of fact, I want to say this. The privilege of discipleship. In Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, Jesus gave this parable of the sower. All right? After giving this parable of the sower to, to the multitude, and then it says in verse 9, after he finished the story, just story, you know, you know, the, many of you probably know the story. He gave this parable. And it says in verse 9, when he was alone, the disciples came to him, asking about the parable. You know what he said? I want you to listen to this carefully. He said, to you, to the disciples, when he was alone, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to, but to those outside, wow. To those outside, I'm just going to give them in parables. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Jesus made a distinction between the crowd and the disciples. To the crowd, they just tell the stories like, oh, this is a great story. You know, can you imagine those people? They're being fed. They they have well, they have their, their needs met, being healed. Maybe they heard the story, of the word of God in parables. And then, could you imagine they go home and say, like, "Yeah, he he told this story about this so uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's an interesting story. I wonder what he was trying to say." But there's a small group of people called. The disciples were Jesus just alone and started to explain to them step by step the parables. It means this. That's a group of people. According to Jesus, they're the insiders. My question is, where are we? In these two groups of people, where are you? Are we disciples or are we just a crowd? where we get entertained with a good story. Wow, this is great. It's fantastic. But there was never a time where Jesus started to reveal the mystery, the secret of the kingdom of God. 
It's a good question to ask yourself, isn't it? So Jesus knew the heart of the Father behind his earthly mission. People must believe, but that can only happen through the process of discipleship. Point number three, that was point number two. It's okay, it's only six points. (laughs) As the son, he understands the principle of stewardship. I love this. Even him, the mission was his. In verse six, he said, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. I'll read it again. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Even his disciples, he didn't claim that as his own. He claimed them as given by the Father. And this spirit of stewardship has to be in every believer. As some leaders, you lead us up. They are not your people. You're just steward over them. So don't control them. You guys, you're not my people. I don't own you. I'm just, Diane and I, we're just stewards over you guys. And our job is like Jesus did. You know what Jesus said? Greater things you will do than this. And my job is to actually make sure that you can do greater things than what I do here. Every person that walks through that door, both Diane and I are always challenged, God, I don't know where that person's going to end up. They might, they might be greater than, they could be the next Billy Graham or whatever, I don't know. But how, how, what a privilege it is to pastor a person that you don't know what's going to be. That could be a prime minister in, in the future. I don't know. But that's how you see it. You see? Jesus said, you're going to do greater things than what I do. So every person that comes into your life that you have the privilege to disciple them. And you must... It's not happening the way we, 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 we would like it to happen, but we're going to make it happen in this church. But the heart has to be there. It's like, they are, I don't own these people. I just, I'm just a steward of them. And God, I don't know. I'll give you an example. You know, do you know who discipled the apostle Paul? Do you know that? Barnabas. He discipled him. When Paul was just nobody in Tarsus. And the apostles from, from, from we're going to preach on this one day. The apostles from Jerusalem say, there's something happened in Antioch. So they sent Barnabas. Barnabas, you go to Antioch. See, there's a move of God. And it says that Barnabas went to Antioch, saw what happened. He went to Tarsus and picked up Paul and said, Paul, come with me. From then on, they ministered together. As you read the, the, uh, the narratives in, in the book of Acts, it's always Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas, and then Halfway through the narrative, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul became greater. That's what discipleship does. You just never know who comes through the door. Just imagine what a privilege it is to actually disciple somebody 
Now, there, there might not be in your life forever, but one day they become something. That's how God works. Can you feel something is enlarging your hearts when you think like that? You feel like God is enlarging our hearts? Number four. Obviously, the one being followed always pray for his followers. I just, now listen, I only have 24 hours a day, so I can't pray for everybody. I can't remember everybody's name, but I pray for the church. But there are significant people in, in our church that there are key people that I see that, you know, I make it my business to pray for them. Now, I don't know, I don't pray for everything, but, you know, this is why we are filled with the Holy Spirit. I just pray in the Spirit. And sometimes the Holy Spirit will reveal something. I just sit down, I just pray. So leaders, you need to pray for your members. Probably the, the most you can do for your members is to pray for them. Because whatever effort you do, which you need to, to help, to, to work, it's limited. But your prayer will go beyond your effort. I'm going to say it again. Your prayer will go beyond your effort. And in here, Jesus prayed for their protection and he prayed for their unity. And point number five, knowing the power of the Holy Spirit, here's the thing, knowing the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus anticipated multiplication of his followers. He anticipated their growth because of the power of the Holy Spirit. I anticipate, both Diane and I, the growth of our people. Not because we are so amazing, but because they have the Holy Spirit. <laughs> hey, listen. I'm not trained in, in leadership, whatever, management, and so I don't know how to do all those things. I'm not administrative. I, I can't even spell administration. I hate it so much. <laughs> but I trust the Holy Spirit will bring the right people and equip the right people. I just give them the word. And the word will multiply. Here's the thing. When a tree draws something from the... Let me just say this. I've got to say, you've got an apple tree... And standing right next to the apple tree is, an, is a tomato tree, whatever. And then uh, there's a, another tree, durian tree, whatever. Do you like durian? Some people, some people say it, it tastes like heaven, smells like hell. But, <laughs> but uh, so, and you cultivate the, cultivate the ground. Same substance, same, chem, same chemical stuff. So, apple tree draw the same substance as the tomato tree. But the apple tree never becomes tomato tree. The apple becomes the best of t- apple. Tomato becomes the best of tomatoes. Durian becomes smellier, but tastes better, but becomes more the best of durian, you know? It's like, 
I give you the word, but you got to become the best of you. You got to become the best of you. That's how it, how, how it works. That's why I'm not going to pretend to be an administrator because it will frustrate my wife to no, to no end. I'm just going to become me. <laughs> All right. Yes, I can see that cynical life, uh, smile. So, when we give the word to people, we believe that, of course, we encourage them, build them, but we believe the power of the Holy Spirit is able, more than able to grow them. And we anticipate that. In verse 20 and 26, Jesus prayed for the believers that will come as a result of their message. And this is The last point is very, very important. In verse 19, he said, I sanctify myself for their sake. The word sanctification, it sounds very spiritual, means to set apart. It's a word the same as consecration. What does that mean to consecrate? What does that mean to sanctify? I mean, you know, we, it's a, we throw, throw it around, but what does that really mean? You know, when you go to a, a big church, you know, and you drive your car into a car park, and you want to park, oh, you, you want to park here, you know, in the, in the car park here, and as you're about to car park, and then to park your car, you see the sign, school principal only, <laughs> you know? You sort of back off. That's what sanctification is. It's like that car park cannot be used by anybody else, only be used by the principal. Or when you're at home, you know, you got, you know, some family likes this, but I don't, I don't care. You know, some families, you got coffee mugs, you know, and then you got this one big coffee mug, and it's got the name Dad. You know? <laughs> In other words, nobody's going to touch that cup. Why? Because it's been sanctified for Dad. Does that make sense to you guys? So it's not just this some super spiritual holiness thing. No, 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 no. Sanctification means your life actually being cut out for something, for a purpose. Specifically for a purpose. And in the Bible narratives, in the Old Testament, they anoint you with oil. They pour out the oil. Oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So when God poured out His Spirit upon you, it's a declaration. You know, in the Old Testament, when well, King David, King Saul, when Samuel came and poured his oil on a king or on a priest, it's a declaration that this man, this person, or even on an altar, this thing is being, it's a declaration, is being separated, is being set aside for a particular purpose. That's why Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord, Luke chapter eight, uh, 4, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me for, because He has anointed me. He has set me apart. He has sanctified me. He has has set me me apart for a purpose, He said, to preach the gospel. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So listen, this is what what I want to say. 
We Pentecostals, we pride ourselves or we speak in tongues. That's nothing. There's a reason why God filled you with the Holy Spirit because he is setting you apart. Every time you speak in tongues, it's not just a sign and a wonder, it's a sign that I am being set apart for a purpose. And nowadays we have loose Pentecostals, just, you know, greasy grace, whatever, you know, it's like, I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. For goodness sake, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're being marked for this purpose. There's a mark on every person here. You're filled with the Holy Spirit, born of the Spirit. God said, it's a declaration by God. Not just by a prophet, by God. The moment he filled your Holy Spirit, it's like Samuel poured oil, but this is God himself pour Holy Spirit on you and declaring, this man is separated for my purpose. Just think of that. The responsibility of being a Spirit-filled Christian. Can I have the band, please? We sing that song, Refiner's Fire. I think, unfortunately, now listen, I, I celebrate the, the celebration that we have, the worship and all those things. Yeah, and, and, uh, but unfortunately, sometimes we get caught up in this, in this culture of worship. I want to say it like that. Or sometimes, I, I, let me just be more blunt, the culture or the industry of worship it becomes a culture but not realizing that no man this is a privilege it's like Christianity being filled with the Holy Spirit is not just so look how, how cool I look when I lead worship and like <laughs> you know like I even heard that word selfie because it's kind of self you know it's true the world is just a big selfie. So, you raise your hands like, you look right. Hang on, the attention is for God or for you, how you reverse it. You know, like, I'm sorry, guys. Now, listen, let me say this. If you think the people come to the church because the band is good, do you notice people come halfway after worship? Just a thought, you know. <laughs> come late, they don't come again, let's listen to worship team, no <laughs> oh God, make us big people I'm not talking numerically, I'm talking about big hearts people you know? <sighs> let's all stand up